FX Medicine is your gateway to news, resources and information on the safe, evidence-based approach to practising complementary and integrative medicine. Visit fxmedicine.com.au to sign up for e-news and stay up to date with the latest research, podcasts and industry information. This is FX Medicine, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us in the studio again today is Dr. Mark Donahue, who earned his medical degree from Sydney Uni in 1980, worked in the hospital system for three years before opening his own general practice on the New South Wales Central Coast. And this is where patient groups such as farmers who could not afford to be sick, presented with complex illnesses which had just been left undiagnosed and untreated by his peers. Mark attests that this is where his real medical education began, so he then delved into environmental medicine, nutritional medicine, and now lifestyle medicine with fellowships in each modality. Dr. Donahue is renowned for unravelling complex illness caused by toxic exposures, creating the first low exposure integrative hospital in Australia, and remains a staunch vanguard for patient advocacy and health. Welcome back to FX Medicine, Mark. How are you I, going? I'm not a grandfather of anything <laughs> this time. Well, sage. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to be back, Andrew. Now, today's part two, where we'll be discussing some treatment choices. Part one of our sleep series is where we discussed the dysfunction, what goes wrong. Yep. So I guess let's start off with some of the uh, more medical treatment choices and what went wrong. I remember Ruth Cracknell an ad on yes. TV. That, this was when I was learning nursing. And this was a plea from even the medical community to stop using benzos, benzodiazepines. Mm. Indeed, back in those days, it was called a benzodiazepine receptor. Right. The GABA-A receptor. So tell us where we've come from and what went wrong. What lessons, hard oh. lessons did we learn? In the 1970s, when I was a tiny, tiny child, you know, so very, very, very young at those times, we had a group of uh, chemicals called barbiturates, and they had become very, very famous for deaths of people like Marilyn Monroe. And uh, the world at that time in the 1960s and 70s largely ran on uh, amphetamines to get you up in the morning and barbiturates to put you off at night. Um Lots and lots of deaths were occurring. And in my first years of medicine, the brave new world, thank God those have gone. Now we have a new group of drugs called benzodiazepines, non-addictive, non-habit-forming, can be used if and when we want them with no adverse effects whatsoever. And the, 19, the late 1970s brought us as a group of doctors to feel that there was now a magic pill that any time people were stressed, needed sleep, that we had now a pill to do that. And in my first years as an intern and a resident, a registrar, a famous drug which was known as Mogadon. Um, Mo the Moggies. The, yeah, the Mogadon was used to keep hospitals quiet, especially Not where old people were in a hospital. It made everyone's life a lot easier. And it took a long while to recognise that what we were doing was chemical straitjacketing of a lot of people. We could make them sleep. Mm. We couldn't easily get them up in the morning to do anything. But, well, you know, that made for an easier time in hospitals and nursing homes anyway. But even then, you'd get patients who were 
you know, getting dependence, showing dependency on moggies and you would use higher and higher doses to get the same effect. So there was an issue of, is this addiction with escalating dose withdrawal responses with those kind of things, or was this just habituation that people started to depend on this? And I think that the lesson learned is when you chuck chemicals at the brains and the minds of people... There's no such thing as non-habit forming. The new normal for that person is the drug-dependent person. And that becomes what you now say, well, is the baseline for them. Are they the same person that they were before? No, not at all. But that learning process of hearing we had bad old days in medicine, we've got brand new drugs that fix all the problems, that's now happened 20 times in my career in different areas of pharmacology. The rule of thumb is every drug has downsides. There are no perfect drugs. There are no perfect ways of treating anything, and especially when you get into chemicals that manipulate the mind. The GABA receptors, this concept of all they're doing is keeping the GABA channel open. How benign does that sound? Mm -hmm. It sounds so much like it's just like you don't have enough serotonin. It's you just don't have enough of an adrenaline receptor effect. Every time we make a drug, there's a story that goes with it. And we doctors are probably the most gullible group over a career. You think, ah, how could I think that that was right again? The the limitations is that a drug does one thing really well, normally. And it Um, normally does it for the short term. So what we gain in the short term, we pay for in the long term. So the, the design of a drug, you're exactly right. The design of a drug is to do a particular thing. If you ignore everything else that it does or does not do, everything else that it does or does not change, the ability of drugs to do a particular job is unsurpassed. That's the science of medicine. What we're not so hot at is what happens one month, 12 months, five years, 25 years And what about the the elegance of the human body, controlling mechanisms? Anyway, we're, we're, I, we're getting onto a pathology sort of we thing We cannot again, get but... too philosophical <laughs> because last time we became a little bit philosophical and we ended up not dealing with the treatment. So today we need to deal with the treatment. That's right. So let's first go through the newer RACGP guidelines, the Royal um, Australian College of General Practitioners guidelines. The movement in the College of GPs is to do anything to have non-drug therapies. However, There is still a division that we've got to make for all practitioners. There is a thing which is acute um, insomnia, which is often revolving around a particular issue, a particular stressor for a person, an identifiable stress. Insomnia can happen as, you know, a grieving process. It can happen when work stresses are extremely high. It can happen for short periods of time. And there is no real problem with the use of symptomatic treatment, just as you would use paracetamol for headaches in a person with headaches that's only short term. You can still use benzodiazepines. And the the classic ones are no longer the long-acting ones like uh, nitrazepam and flunitrazepam. They tend to be temazepam. People will know it because that's what people take on when they're going on flights overseas to try and, you know, get their sleep on a flight. And for short-term use, and by acute insomnia, we're meaning where the person is feeling that they're getting less than 50% of the sleep they need over a four-week period or less. And in those circumstances, even the RACGP guidelines are quite cool about using short-term benzodiazepines. And that typically is a temazepam, 10 or 20 milligrams. It's not the kind of thing every naturopath can prescribe. And it's probably not the kind of thing that every doctor is now comfortable with prescribing. We did this like, we sent it out like sweets and lollies Mm. in in years past. Mother's little helper. Yeah. 
Well, Mother's Little Help was, uh, you know, the it's had it's had various incarnations over time. Bex was Mother's Little Helper, as you remember. Oh, was it? Yeah, and it was a cup of tea, Bex, and a good lie down. Right. Was, was the uh, mogadon of the of the 1970s and 80s. So we ruined a lot of kidneys on that occasion. Mm. We've done a lot of uh, deaths from respiratory suppression earlier than that. And then we've now got an attitude towards the benzodiazepines, which is they are evil, (coughs) pure evil. And I think that that's the wrong attitude to have because for short-term symptomatic treatment, it's still a very effective way. And for people who are going through something where there's a known short-term reason why they cannot sleep, it's a thing that can An establish... stress or in their life. That's instance, right. Yeah. Something that's clearly identifiable and is not going to go on for a long period. Mm. Now, that's not always the case. People think work stress is a short-term and then they become long-term and then they become, you know, retrenchment. And so you've got to be a little bit careful about saying it's only short-term. So this, yeah, this is where we had the issues previously was, I would, you know, only use it short-term. Of course, that became chronic use. Yes. So how does a medical practitioner sift through those at higher risk of dependency? Um, mm. I mean, that's intense questioning. I know. I know. And that takes time in a consultation. Uh, look, for many, many people, the best sleep inducer is a, is a, a glass of wine or a, a drink of alcohol before bed. I'm not promoting the use of alcohol for sleep, but I'm saying that has tended to be how people got past their anxieties Put that, themselves that's off the to good sleep. side of alcohol. Correct? I know. Like this is the old. It wasn't Winston Churchill. It was somebody else that says, who was asked once, "Is alcohol bad? You know, surely it's bad." And he was saying, "Well, if you mean the alcohol that robs the household of the weekly rent and causes violence and things, well, obviously that's the bad alcohol. But if hmm. you're talking about the social engagement and the salubriant and things yes. like that, well, obviously that's the good alcohol. The snifter of brandy. Uh, yeah, or so a good which cognac. one are you talking yes, about? Alcohol, but alcohol. Alcohol cannot easily be recommended by doctors. If you go and say, you know, go and have a couple of drinks before bed, we all tend to turn our nose up at that. We're after something a little more sophisticated. But alcohol has been the traditional way in which people get over the anxieties that can sometimes lead to sleep changes. Now, the second thing to say about sleep is people who suffer insomnia, it's it's like, are you suffering pain? There's no really good objective measure of insomnia except that the person feels that they're not getting the sleep that they need. The reason I say that is when people suffer insomnia, they underestimate the amount of sleep that actually happens during the night. And so the anxiety and insomnia um, kind of rolling snowball gathers size and importance in the person's life. And very often in the early stages, it is possible for some people to simply say, you are estimating sleep inappropriately, that you are getting more sleep than you think. Because every study done has people estimate the sleep, and when they believe they have insomnia, around about 60% is what they estimate of the actual sleep they have when you put the electrodes on and see whether they're asleep. But is this because people confuse sleep with rest? Whatever it is, they're underestimating their sleep. Or rejuvenation. So, yeah. And so the... it's, it is difficult to say to people, if you go and meditate, if you go and, put you, if you go and do breathing, that is the equivalent of sleep. It's not exactly the equivalent of sleep, but it does the rest and it does allow people to function for longer periods of time. We'll come onto that with the non-drug approaches to insomnia in just a minute. But the first thing to say is often just talking to a person and saying, you may believe you are getting very little sleep, you are getting more than you think. And the body, unless there is pathology going on, you know, you do have certain types of diseases 
um, that do predispose to very, very abbreviated and awful sleep. Even obstructive sleep apnea is one of those where you can change the sleep pattern and it has nothing to do with anxiety or anything. It has to do with the physics of breathing. So you, you do need, as a doctor, to cover those things. Do you have obstructive sleep apnea? I think that the OSA testing now is probably, we're leaving that in the past because what we do know about doing the sleep studies is when you take a person and put them in an institution or you put electrodes all over them, whatever stressful. you say, that sleep is not the same no. as the other nights of sleep. No. And some people in the hospital get their best night and they come back and they say, well, that's the first night I've had a decent sleep in years. And other people, it's just distressing. And the interpretation of it is less and less capable of helping us out. So unless you, you know, you've got a big guy who's drinking lots of alcohol and you think that they're just not breathing most of the night, severe obstructive sleep apnea still needs to be diagnosed because daytime sleepiness and other consequences arise. But beyond that, the interpretation of sleep is poorly done by the person who's lacking the sleep. Once you, th once you think you're lacking sleep, anxiety builds. As anxiety builds, sleep gets further and further away. And so it is one of those automatic functions that when you lose control, there's a total loss of control. And the anxiety that's provoked itself has to be dealt with. And I think that's where you've got a very good early intervention with herbs that can settle anxiety and one... One thing I think every practitioner that listens to us will know is magnesium is a really important a agent. Yes, a not herb. a herb. <laughs> you can tell how close I am to herbalism. Yeah. But in terms of non-drug approaches that are still pharmacological, yeah. magnesium is really, really important. And I think that there's evidence that the magnesium and the threonine, the magnesium threonate as a combination, does a better job of settling that hyper-responsiveness, that heightened super responsiveness, that alertness of the nervous system and brings it down. And it settles the muscles and it does allow for a certain calmness. Epsom salt baths are another very, very popular thing. Yeah. Now, now this is something where we get into not just the mineral, the supposed active we talk about, no, but where the ligand that it's joined to is an important factor in which agent you would choose. Yes. You know, if you wanted to choose magnesium oxide, you get to a point where there's a bowel tolerance. Yes. You're not going to get much sleep that night. Um, oh, that's <laughs> um, cruel. No, that's right. But, you know, then there's the magnesium citrate, the magnesium uh, bisglycinate uh, or diglycinate, it's called. But then obviously the, the magnesium threonate, yeah. um, which, you know, they've each got different sort of niceties to them. And I guess one of my things is as long as you're not going to have an upset tummy yeah. um, and, and my thing that I've learned over the years is, is smaller doses throughout the day, right. not one big dose at night. Don't yeah. ask for a heavy hitter. It won't work for you. It, People it still tend smaller, to take their magnesium at night. And so there is, a, there is the, the psychological side of sleep management is still important. What you do in the evening tends to predispose to better or worse sleep. And so people who feel that they're in good control of their sleep, it tends to be the nighttime pattern, the nighttime ritual that gets things into a, a pattern of function. And so the magnesium is typically, the most of it is taken at night. But I, I do agree with you. If you're giving magnesium and you want the levels to, tissue levels to remain high right through the day, then doing small amounts. People put load their magnesium into a bottle of water, carry it with them through the day, sip that bottle of water mm. all the way through the day. Far so, better results. Yeah, you get far better results and you get no bowel tolerance issues. However, people still take their dose at night. Yes. And it becomes... 
When do you take your temazepam? You would take it at night. When do you take your magnesium? You take it at night. When do you do your warm shower, your bath, your, you know, your bath? Well, exercise is in fact at the other end of the day. So the evidence is stronger for it being daytime exercise to exhaust yourself to be ready for the nighttime. But I, I think the magnesium, I was impressed by, you know, this year's, this last year's biocidicals conference, all the speakers were honing in on magnesium three and eight. And so I started trying that. I I was not a big fan of it because it was expensive, difficult to do, compounded, and things that cost a fortune have a negative impact on people's health and life as well. But as magnesium 3 and 8 becomes more available, I think the opportunity will be there because in the past, we prescribed threonine to help do the settling for, so threonine as the amino acid, and now the magnesium 3 and 8 can combine two good nutrients and give it in a way that may allow for absorption and tissue levels and have a dual action. Now, you've just mentioned amino acids. So Mm. adenosine, glycine, what about their actions? Well, I want to deal with one first, and that is GABA. Right. There is is an interesting issue just to be dealt with there because GABA does not cross the blood-brain barrier. No. However, a lot of people that we see in our practices with illnesses like chronic fatigue syndrome, gastrointestinal disorders, loss of the barrier system around the place have disrupted blood-brain barriers, and GABA can work very, very well, but it does not work on a, you know, today you take your dose. But there is also the gut-brain interface. Yes. Yeah, and so the working, which way are we actually working there? But there is a strange thing about GABA. GABA use at, you know, maybe even a gram or two a day. You can, over a period of just a week or so, find very significant differences in sleep tendencies. Now, I... I'm not able to even understand why that why that happens. But over and over, people, patients say the same thing. I take the GABA, I take the GABA, nothing happens for a week or two, and then sleep patterns start to fall back into their normal shape and pattern. I'm not sure that I understand that. But I'm not against people trying something like that, where at least they were in that kind of GABA glutamate, that kind of as uh, Henry Asiki used to say, the war between the two neurotransmitters. If it really is that and you can up the GABA availability, the body seems to do something to cart some of that internally or maybe uses in the external part in the gut or elsewhere are managed. I'm not a big fan of serotonin reuptake inhibitors, but again, we do have things where Drugs that bind onto the 5-hydroxytryptamine receptors around the place do have effects on sleep. But they're all very indirect. So what's the favorite thing of doctors? We'll give a low-dose antidepressant to someone and say, this might help sleep. We give low-dose antipsychotics. This might help sleep. It does remind me of the days where we had televisions that were made of cathode ray tubes and they would go on the blink and you would hit them on the (laughs) left and nothing would happen. Then you'd kick them and nothing would happen. Then you built the antenna area and it came back to life. It was, oh, see, there is the method of treatment. But that method of treatment only works if there is enough serotonin in that synapse to be prevented for reuptake, i.e. you've got got enough there. You've got to to make enough. So there comes your 5-HTP, which is your immediate um, precursor, your 5-hydroxytryptophan, rather than 5-hydroxytryptamine, which is 5-HT. Right. So how cautious do we have to be using a substrate like 5-HTP? I don't know that we need to be cautious because the alternative is if the person is not sleeping and not functioning, 
This is, as I said, the whacking the TV on the right-hand side and seeing what happens. So I'll be truthful, with a lot of sleep treatment, even, I mean, I have a bit of experience in this recently, even the best experts in the areas, the psychiatrists will disagree one with another. No two of them agree on exactly what to do. The psychiatrists tend to move more towards the antipsychotics at very low doses. The general practitioners tend to move towards the antidepressants, typically the serotonin reuptake inhibitors at pretty low doses. Everybody's fiddling around on the edges there. The medical management of it, once you make um, uh, the benzodiazepines evil, doctors are struggling to find out, well, what else do I do? It's easy for a specialist to say, you shall not use these things that give symptomatic treatment. But the doctor GP is left with the question of, well, what do I do to help this person? And over the last six months, I've been finding out that that is a common problem that people present with, and we really struggle to have a good evidence-based approach to it. Now, the the thing that I, I think that we can say with the amino acids is there are people who respond to 5-HTP. There are people who respond to serotonin reuptake inhibitors, but there is no predictability. You cannot talk to the person and ask them questions before that guide you Mm. into a better mode of treatment. And so we're left still at the moment with a vague thing of you suffer from insomnia, anxiety is involved, techniques of going to bed are involved. There's a whole lot of players in that field that separate one person from another. And if we call it we're treating insomnia, then we're not doing what we what really happens in integrative and in compl- and in alternative types of medicine. We're not paying attention to the person and their circumstances. We're saying the thing that's wrong is insomnia. Mm. Where for some people it's anxiety. For some people it is stresses that are in their workplace and should really obviously be dealt with. For some people, it is having a child who's a two year old and then having another one and not getting sleep for very very yeah. obvious yeah. reasons. Yeah. And so separating those into different categories, I think, is the number one thing we do as practitioners. We say, can we look for causes? Can we go deeper? I think that there is a huge proportion of people who are super, super sensitive to environmental effects around them. Put them in a city and the ambulances and the fire engines that are in the background of their life forever are always there. Some of those people respond really well to these new sleep buds. They put things in their ear and the world disappears a little bit around them, and they've got quiet. In evolutionary terms, we never had cities. We might have had lions and tigers and all those kind of terrible things, but we didn't have that constant buzz in the background of the world. And the second thing Which is, is really funny for city dwellers because that constant buzz can sometimes be a almost like a security blanket. It can be. It can be it's that really kind of white noise. Yeah. But there are still, and I hear this all the time, I see I'm a deep sleeper. I've never heard a siren in my life. But my Do you partner... Do to make the sound? Yeah, my, <laughs> my partner does actually hear all of those and it brings a wakefulness. That's what sirens are for. Yeah. They get you, you know, to pay attention. And so that heightened sensitivity, that what we call central sensory oh, we sensitivity... we could so go off on a tangent here, We Mark. could. But that <laughs> super sensitivity comes up for people who live in particular areas. Interestingly, for many people who live in the city, me included, the country, when it goes quiet, yeah. is horrible. Yeah. Yeah. There's something missing from but, my life and, and I can't sleep without that And there's that white this noise. Period, period of transience where you need to get used to the new environment. You People know. from the country slowly get used to the city noises. There, there are two senses that are really, or three senses, I'll say. One of them is auditory. So the city 
or the country or whatever the outside environment is impinges on the on the hearing of a person and keeps them at that level of wakeness, wakefulness, which sees them awake multiple times through the night. The other one is a little bit self-imposed, but in the city, there's always light. Yeah. And we do ourselves no service by taking screens into our rooms, having television in a bedroom, taking screens into rooms and having lots of streetlights outside that just infiltrate. It's never fully dark in a city. It's really, really hard to do that. So some people are very light sensitive and some people voluntarily take their screens into their room and spend their nights just before they go to bed looking at a screen with lots of blue light and wonder why they're not heading off to sleep straight afterwards. Some get up in the night and check the stock exchange or check the international trading things and wonder why they're not sleeping well. And that's because the anxiety of that associated with the light in their room just never lets so them the, get to sleep. It's really interesting now that even these you know, blue light devices have, have got a night shift. They've um, got a them. night shift. And the question is, is that effective? Right? Well, it's still light. It is. You know? And there's still some blue in it. Removing all the blue creates a very poor experience. And as you know from Apple, Google, we all like people to have the good experience of the nice screen that looks just beautiful. I'm laughing here because I am one of these culprits. Um, and, and I find that one of my rituals to get off to sleep is to watch a few YouTube videos of British mm -hmm. comedy um, or funny dogs jumping into lakes. Lol. <laughs> but Lol. Um, um, but um, my wife hates it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, even I think it was two nights ago, I, she woke me up because she was like, oh, can you turn your mobile over? Right. That sort of thing. Um, I was already asleep. Right. <laughs> so you couldn't do yeah, that. Yeah, I woke her up <laughs> by right. doing it. But I, I just wanted to circle back for a tick. Forgive me for sort of getting off track a bit, but I think we need to cover it. And that is the old issue with the benzos. Right. Once you've damaged those receptors, can you rejuvenate normal functioning of those receptors? Or are you forever more dysfunctional? No, you're not forever more dysfunctional, but it is a long journey. So people who are coming off benzodiazepines, it looks like, oh, what's the half-life of them? Six hours, four hours. It should be very easy, shouldn't it? Because by the time you come to the next night, you've eliminated 80 to 90%. Well, it depends if your receptors are there. Yeah, so. <laughs> but the same goes with alcoholism. We clear out alcohol pretty quickly as well. But the impact that it leaves on the brain, on the nervous system afterwards is quite profound and can eventually lead to you know, Wernicke-Corsakoff-type syndromes, even though the alcohol level at that time is zero. Um, so we do have the problem, that, and I think now benzodiazepine withdrawal is seen more as a process of you stick with the benzodiazepines and you introduce something else. And the, the popular one is CBTI at the moment. But you do something that changes the need for it and you come down very, very slowly. So a typical dosage would be a reduction over, say, three to four months rather than the week or two that you would expect just from the half-life of them. So that time period often goes to two years for some people as yeah. well. I'm going to give a shout out here to an old podcast I did with a, a dear pharmacist friend of mine, um, Greg Mapp, um, who created a whole uh, clinic indeed. He started a clinic called Mirakai at Burley Heads um, right. around a drug dependency. And this was both prescription and illicit. So there's two podcasts that I did with Greg Mapp. And when, we, when you teach a group of doctors, there are no dependencies. They're, these are the new type of drugs. They don't create addiction. You have to be careful how you define addiction. The, the old ones 
tended to be very literally addictive, induce enzymes, and you had uh, horrible effects both of taking the drug and of coming off the drug. And then you get a new safe one called Zolpidem. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and every, every time Which, the, oh, Z, hang the on. Z drugs. <laughs> yeah, so uh, you're right. Every time we believe the fairy tale yeah. and every time you put a chemical in to change brain function, there are consequences that are unexpected. And there are variations of person to person for whom these drugs are just terrible news and that it's a bad idea to introduce them. And you can pick that often people who've had a family history of alcoholism, drug dependency, brothers or sisters have drug dependencies. There is something about this kind of dopaminergic effect that you have an effect, then you have indirect effects on dopamine, things that are unintended consequences and it can be as simple as, I really like sleep. That's how the person expresses it. Therefore, I take this drug. And when you try and withdraw it too quickly, you don't get classic withdrawal effects. You don't get the nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. You don't get some of the things that you would otherwise get. But what you get is no return to the normal that was the normal before the drug mm -hmm. came in. Mm -hmm. And so you're asking Perfect them to, drug. Yeah, to put up with the, that's right, the very thing. And I think that I'm cynical. The The way that we're moving from the benzodiazepines is they were the old drugs. They're all off patent. There's new ones that are now preserve the sleep cycle, preserve the structure of sleep. We're all very big about, oh, we they were the bad old days. I love the term, but we now know. Yeah. What we, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. We now understand <laughs> that you need to preserve the sleep structure. And so the, the new drugs, the Z drugs come along and we think, oh, these, these will be different. And deep down, they're not. They're just another way of not doing the hard work of non-drug approaches to sleep. And one part that we're good at in integrative medicine, naturopaths are very good at, is spending the time to find out why. And most doctors don't do that. You know, in five or 10 minutes, you can say, is work stressful? Work is stressful. That go is what goes on the notes. Work stress, yeah. benzodiazepine, yeah. three weeks. Yeah. And then you say that th that thing is handled. If they come back, we'll go deeper. I think it is useful that we have this thing called CBTI, Cognitive Behavioral Therapies for Insomnia. But when you go back on the history of CBTI, it's a committee that's made the decision of here's the little bits of evidence that we have that sleep deprivation may work, that, you know, going back, having a habit forming that the bedroom is only used for sleep. There are a bunch of components to CBTI, which every little bit has got its own little bit of evidence. And then you whack it together in a committee and say, why don't we do all of this? And I have not yet found one patient in my practice who has responded well to CBTI which is delivered in the way that, it, you know, the so-called protocol for it is done. Everyone has to vary it. Some people become very anxious about the deprivation that's required. You actually reduce your sleep hours intentionally. And pe for people who get anxiety about those effects, it just worsens sleep. It doesn't improve it. So what I've found is CBTI's usefulness is here's half a dozen things called CBTI and a practitioner who understands sleep. And if you if you choose carefully from the little half dozen things that are meant to be done there, then you can find a way back to sleep with the help of that practitioner. Now, as you and I both know, there is this thing called a placebo effect. Yeah, yeah. And the placebo effect depends not on what the patient believes, but what, on the, what the practitioner believes and how much the patient trusts the practitioner. And so the concept of a placebo effect is Western medicine is the greatest placebo of all time. Doctors passionately believe that we are the only scientifically based group of people who know what we're really doing. We believe passionately. A friend of mine said many years ago, 
bugger evidence-based medicine, penicillin used to work for viral sore throats brilliantly. And once you know it doesn't work, (laughs) you can't do that. And he published a paper in the MJA that penicillin should be considered a placebo that works for all kinds of sore throats as long as the doctor believes in it. The same thing goes for sleep therapies. If the doctor is not confident, if the practitioner is not confident about what they're doing, that lack of confidence is conveyed to the patient and the patient, the client, or the non-sleeper. So one thing to be clear about is confidence of the practitioner that they've got tools that can help and that they will put them together in an individual way is the number one most important thing for the non-sleeping person. That if they know that person will work through stuff with them rather than here's the next pill, here's the next pill, here's the next pill, I know it's possible and very simple for you to end up with four different doctors, four different treatments, three incompatible drugs, <laughs> and then be expected to sleep. And some people still do. You like, you do raise a very interesting question there, though, with regards to that placebo effect, and that is, should the practitioner be allowed to prescribe a placebo? In the olden, olden, olden days of pharmacy, you would see a script coming across saying, uh, tinct aqua. Mm. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> um, which is water. Yes. You, you would see a, mm. a, a patient come in saying, the doctor has given me a script for a draft. Right. What was this draft? Yeah. And those days are gone in because we're now clouded by litigious. Uh, I don't know. I don't know that they're gone. When a doctor gives a strength, uh, a script for a serotonin reuptake inhibitor for reactive depression, that is a placebo. It doesn't work. It's not a, anything better than placebo. What we've now found is temazepam for sleep, even in acute stages, doesn't work better than placebo. We think we're prescribing actives. But what's actually happening is the majority of the benefit is coming can you from. S- can the you practice. just say that again? Temazepam, when prescribed for for acute and chronic sleep disorders, works no better than placebo. So we know that it induces sleep, but we, as doctors, should be not surprised by the fact that we believe things to be true. We've been through it a hundred times with the you know penicillin for sore throats. That when we believe something we convey confidence to a person. The person has the confidence that they say, my practitioner's looking after me. And when you take that out of the equation, then two things are clear. For reactive depression, the common types of depression, which is anxious depression, there is no antidepressant effect of antidepressants. It works in severe depression, endogenous depression that we used to call it. Definitely works in those cases, which is where the trials are done. But when you come down to reactive depression, grieving, you know, all, all the common reasons that people are stressed, antidepressants and the whole story of you don't have enough serotonin is absolute BS. That, that now raises the, massive questions on drug research. It does. It does. But it's happened all the way since drugs were first produced. And so what drug companies will do is they'll find a disease and they aim for a treatment for that disease. They look for something that will change a receptor. And then when it comes down to it, they choose the worst possible case of heart disease with cholesterol inhibitors. They choose people who've had a heart attack, highly likely to have the next one, and then apply it to everybody who's got to raise cholesterol. So the problem that we have in medicine is we want drug trials to be cost effective. So we choose worst case scenarios, <clears throat> see that something works in those occasions. Severe, you know, insomnia that people are going crazy over. You can put a person to sleep with a sufficient dose of temazepam. That's true. 
But when it comes to day-to-day -day use of temazepam, it doesn't prove better than placebo. And so that's part of the reason why there's a move away from the benzodiazepines, that they do a job. The long-term consequences of which are you pay for a lot of mm, benzodiazepines mm, mm. over many years for millions of people. And when it comes time to stop it, you cannot stop that from going on. So you create a problem by the use of the benzodiazepines, but you don't solve that problem because now you've got to have something else to get you out of the insomnia that's going to happen when you withdraw from that. You were mentioning, uh, you know, the blue light screens and, and light before. So let's talk about a little bit about melatonin. Mm. I mean, initially the, it was made popular because of um, uh, travellers, yeah. but, um, you know, it's now used for insomnia. And I wonder about the formulation that's approved on the on the Australian PBS, Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme. I question it. You mean the melatonin that's available on prescription in pharmacies? Yeah. So in Australia, it's called circadian, and it's a controlled release formula, right? Right. How does that mimic natural melatonin release? It doesn't. We, we have a cycle, and every practitioner knows this. There is a dance between melatonin and cortisol. Right. That dance between melatonin and cortisol is an intimate two-way feedback um, response. The melatonin rises and then falls in the early hours of the morning, and supposedly the light is the you know the discriminating agent there. And as a result, cortisol rises, and the dance between the two is as one rises, the other one falls. We have this concept of stress as disturbing the circadian rhythm of the adrenal glands, but you can disturb that circadian rhythm by disturbing melatonin. I'm not sure that measuring melatonin is all that useful, but a loss of diurnal cycle sees one very clear thing, and that is you lose the diurnal cortisol. You don't have the peak in the morning and the trough in the afternoon. You can have inversions of that, in fact, where you know, normal levels for morning are about 350 to 400 and normal levels for the afternoon about a half to a third of that. You can have it go the other way and there is no way that person has a normal sleep cycle. Mm. So if you were being very literal, you'd say, oh, just give you cortisol in the morning. It doesn't work out all that well to give prednisone to people for the next 25 years of their life because we do damage their bones and we do damage just about everything mm, else. Heart, so yeah. melatonin has become the control of the kind of... Um, the neurobiological controller, and we dump melatonin in there. Now, for some people, they take melatonin drops and it gets them off to sleep. But the thing about melatonin is it doesn't have an effect on the, on the sleep of the night that you're about to take it. It can reset the cycle, help you reset for London or New York time or something else if you're taking it the future time zone. Yeah. But after a short period of time of people improving their sleep on melatonin, they think of it like they think of temazepam and it works. And that's the real pain that if they get a circadian script or if they get a melatonin script, once the body's got a bit of a hint that the, the diurnal circadian rhythm of melatonin and uh, cortisol works, they don't, it's, it's the placebo effect. On the end, they just take their melatonin on the nights that they feel, oh, I'm going to have a tough night, and it relaxes them, and it allows them to feel that they're under some control. And this is a real problem for me when people say, I don't take tele mel melatonin all that much, but on nights where I'm going to have a bad sleep, I just dump a lot of it in on that night. And I'm caught really? saying, yeah, and I'm caught at the point where I'm about to say, well, that's not how it works. And then I think, well, hang on, it is working. If if melatonin has harm to do by doing it in that way, then I'm unaware of it at the moment. But people do end up taking melatonin as if it were a benzodiazepine 
and they get an outcome. They take um, temazepam and get an outcome. It doesn't mean that what we're doing is the right thing. It means that we're tricking the body into, hey, guess what? It's sleep time and you can relax because you've got something now to support you in your sleep. And I think that comes back to the next thing that we have to deal with is um, a kind of regimen at night without it being too tightly controlled, without it being fearfully controlled. Oh, if I miss my tablet by a minute, I'm in trouble. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A, an evening regimen of, of exercise through the day, I've expended energy, I have a pattern which is when do you have your meal, when do you, uh, when do you start to wind down for bed, where do you put your devices around the place. Even if you're on medications, taking them at a similar time each night, that pattern convinces the body that sleep is back under control. And so re-establishing a sleep cycle is often nothing more than establishing a pattern in the evening of a warm shower, of meditation, of doing breathing, of, you know, the four in, hold, four out, hold. There's something about patterns that remind you of the time to sleep that induce the body to fall asleep. And there's something about anxiety of missing some part of that uh, protocol that often keeps people awake. They remember as they're about to fall asleep, oh, I didn't take my melatonin. <laughs> and they promptly become super anxious about it and can't fall asleep without going down and getting their melatonin. So I wanted to give another shout out. And I mean, you admit freely that herbs are not your forte. So Narelle Henschel and I did uh, a couple of podcasts on sleep hygiene. So again, listeners, if you want to look her up, you can you can uh, learn more about sleep hygiene there. Mark, I did want to just ask about things like... Um, you know, we've spoken about the long game. Nutrients particularly, magnesium, does not necessarily work for that night. Yeah. Melatonin does not necessarily work for that night. Same yes. with HT, HP, HTP. So we need to be really reinforcing that this is a, a longer-term strategy. That's exactly um, right. So yeah. what about things like, you know, phosphatidylserine, which can aid in reducing cortisol over a period mm-hmm. of days, weeks? Do you ever use, utilise that in your patients? I, I don't. I, th- I think, well, the reason I don't use it is I haven't thought of it until you just told me that. <laughs> Let's be honest. But so 400 to 600 milligrams per day. Of phosphatidylserine. Divided doses. Okay. Um, with meals always and never at night. Okay. Because <laughs> you'll get wired. But yeah, I mean, it's mainly used with athletes to decrease cortisol. Right. But if cortisol is the issue. Well, cortisol is the issue, but cortisol is usually, it's the loss of diurnal variation. So the, the ones where you can predict that melatonin will work very well are when morning cortisol is, say, 180 to 200, way below where you would think of a normal one, and the afternoon is 220 or 30 then you know that re-establishing a cycle, trying to bring the cortisol up. And I will tell you, melatonin of any type, the circadian or the sustained release or the rapid release, you can, within a four-week period, have cortisol levels that have got that two-to-one ratio of morning to afternoon by tricking the body with the melatonin. You can also do it with bright light therapy. Right, so getting people so that they wake up at a particular time each day, they set the alarm and they light, get the, the bright RAS light. The RAS, yeah, reticular activating system. Yeah? That's right. right. And so there is that that rapid melatonin decline, which is just a signal going on inside the body. Whoop! Wake up time. There's the sunlight. Time to get moving again. There are also some people for whom the normal sleep pattern is: you go to bed at one a.m. and you wake up at ten or eleven a.m. And we call those people children. And teenagers specifically, we have a whole problem with sleep disorders 
that we are putting teenagers through high stresses of, say, high school certificate and other exams, so that their future life is dependent on it, and then wanting them to be there at seven in the morning and going to bed at the wrong time. The natural circadian rhythm for a teenager is very different to a 60-year-old teacher who really needs to get their early night's sleep. Mm-hmm. But these, the natural rhythm is, uh, is that they will be awake at around about 10, 11 in the morning. And there's lots of people in education now talking about schools where yeah, you yeah, match it, not to when mum and dad have to go to work in the morning and then come home at Which night. Which is going to cause all sorts of problems. It's <laughs> going to cause problems, but it so, is true that their cycle is different. And uh, matching it to the person's cycle is what we're really needing so I, I just wanted to do a little recap. So what things do you find work well in many patients? You've, you've mentioned CPTI. Yes. Um, take us through the hallmarks of this, why it's so good. Uh, CBTI works when people do not become too obsessed about every last detail of it and when they work with a practitioner who is well-trained in CBTI. I am not the world's number one fan of cognitive behavioural therapies, but putting a pattern and a structure to what you do to allow yourself to get to sleep, turning the bedroom into a place where you only sleep. You don't go there for other things. You don't read books and things. You stay out of the bedroom until it's sleep time. You distress the body a little by shortening sleep hours so that the person is wanting to get to sleep. A really important part is expending energy in the early part of the day. Yes. Getting to do your exercise, moving the muscles, convincing the body that the daytime is the daytime. People go into their shell when they have insomnia and think, oh, I better rest all the time. That's the worst thing for the mind when it's looking for when do I actually sleep. So CBTI provides structure and framework. It provides a protocol that people can trust. The magnesium threonates and providing adequate uh, nutrient availability, getting the gut functioning well, also settles sleep. And I should mention this thing that I, you probably haven't heard of called stewed apple, probiotics and saccharomyces. Mm. I, I don't think I've we'll ever mentioned that recipe that before, up on the website again. But you would be surprised how many people, I do not even pay attention to sleep, and they come back and say, my gut is better and weirdly I'm sleeping better. Whether or not they've solved their other problems, often pain and the like, if you work via the gut and get the, a really good functional gut, it's surprising how capable that is of organising a sleep-wake cycle. Beyond that, what do we do? It tends to be, well, yoga, meditation, breath, getting cycles back in the body where the body gets confident about holding its own cycles together so that there is tiredness at the end of the day, food that is nutritious but not excessive, and then a pattern of maybe breath work, yoga, mindfulness, depends on what the person needs, or even a hobby, something that they just love to do. Ah. And then taking out all of the lights. Some reward. Yeah, a reward. Reward system. And and at the end of the day, at the end of another fulfilling day, sleep is returning, not because we have brutally beaten the person into a sleepful mode, but because there's an, a tiredness and exhaustion which is useful at the end of that day. And that's how we can guide them as practitioners. Our confidence makes a big difference to the person in front of us. Mm. And when we just go back for, here's a pill, here's a pill, here's a pill, oh, I don't know why it's not working, that loses the confidence of the person. So I think people have their insomnia managed best by a practitioner who's confident that their techniques can add something to that quality of sleep. I I think the days of the quote-unquote magic pill might work in a short-term 
uh, treatment plan, if you like, but only when used with a long-term framework, which includes lifestyle issues. And I think that's where we're going. Yeah, and time with the person is important. Their ability to tell you why they're not sleeping and for you to listen as a practitioner half the time gives you the very answer that you need. What needs to be fixed for that person is bloody obvious if you have the time to listen. Salient words, and it, 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 it allows us not to rely on pills. So thank you so much for taking us through this today, Mark. It's been a pleasure again. It always is, Andrew. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you're a regular visitor to the FX Medicine website, you would have seen many of our great infographics. These are all now available for use in your clinic. You can download them for free. And the high-resolution versions are available for purchase as A3 or A2 posters or as a digital file. Simply click on the button beneath your favourite infographics at fxmedicine.com.au.